Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Now, of course, you all probably know that I have a little bit of experience with first contact. Well, <laughs> at least on screen. And I'll talk about that more at the end of the episode. But I do love a story about the meeting of two species, two cultures, two beings that were not previously sure of one another's existence. And this story is about first contact, but probably not in the romantic way that we often think about it. I think this story speaks to the tenacity the dedication and patience required of scientists, that push and pull between our own and others' opinions, others' desires, others' needs. This story is by the Hugo-nominated author Carrie Vaughn, who wrote the New York Times best-selling series of novels about a werewolf named Kitty, along with several other contemporary fantasy and young adult novels. This story was first published at Tor.com and is part of her collection Amaryllis and other stories. I really hope you like it. But before we begin, one last thing to remind you of the yearning we feel to know the universe even when we feel bogged down. It's a quote from the one and only Carl Sagan. We embarked on a journey to the stars with a question first framed in the childhood of our species and in each generation asked anew with undiminished wonder, what are the stars? Exploration is in our nature. We began as wanderers, and we are wanderers still. We have lingered long enough on the shores of the cosmic ocean. We are ready at last to set sail for the stars. Now, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. The Best We Can by Carrie Vaughn. 
in the end, the discovery of evidence of extraterrestrial life, and not just life, but intelligence, got hopelessly mucked up because no one wanted to take responsibility for confirming the findings. And no one could decide who ultimately had the authority, the obligation, to do so. We submitted the paper, but peer review held it up for a year. News leaked. NASA announced one of their press conferences, but the press conference ended up being an announcement about a future announcement which never actually happened, and the reporters made a joke of it. Another case of Antarctic meteorites or cold fusion. We went around with our mouths shut, waiting for an official announcement while ulcers devoured our guts. So... I wrote a press release. I had Marsh at JPL's Comet Group and Salvayan at Columbia vetted for me and released it under the auspices of the JPL Near-Earth Objects Program. We could at least start talking about it instead of arguing about whether we were ready to start talking about it. I didn't know what would happen next. I did it in the spirit of scientific outreach, naturally. The release included that now-famous blurry photo that started the whole thing. I had an original print of that photo of UO1, Unidentified Object 1, because... It technically wasn't flying, and I was being optimistic that this would be the first of more than one, framed and hanging on the wall over my desk. A stark focal point in my chronically cluttered office. Out of the thousands of asteroids we tracked and photographed, this one caught my eye, because it was symmetrical and had a higher-than-normal albedo. It flashed even, like a mirror. Asteroids aren't symmetrical and aren't very reflective, but if it wasn't an asteroid... We turned as many telescopes on it as we could, tried to get time on Hubble, and failed because it sounded ridiculous. Why waste time looking at something inside the orbit of Jupiter? We did get Arecibo on it, We got pictures from multiple sources, studied them for weeks until we couldn't argue with them any longer. No one wanted to say it because it was crazy. Just thinking it would get you sacked. And I got so frustrated with the whole group sitting there in the conference room after hours on a Friday afternoon staring at each other with wide eyes and dropped jaws and no one saying anything that I said it. It's not natural, and it's not ours. U01 was approximately 250 meters long, with a fan shape at one end, blurred at the other, as if covered with projections too fine to show up at that resolution. The rest was perfectly straight, 
a thin stalk holding together blossom and roots, the lines rigid and artificial. The fan shape might be a ram scoop. Angie came up with that idea, and the conjecture stuck. No matter how much I reminded people that we couldn't decide anything about what it was or what it meant, not until we knew more. We, the scientific community, Astronomers, philosophers, writers, all of humanity had spent a lot of time thinking about what would happen if we found definitive proof that intelligent life existed elsewhere in the universe. All the scenarios involved these other intelligences talking to us, reaching out to us, sending a message we would have to decipher, would be eager to decipher. Hell, we sure wouldn't be able to talk to them, not stuck on our own collection of rocks like we were. Whether people thought we'd be overrun with sadistic tripods or be invited to join a greater benevolent galactic society that was always the assumption, we'd know they were there because they'd talk to us. When that didn't happen, it was like no one knew what to do next. No one had thought about what would happen if we just found a, a thing that happened to be drifting a few million miles out from the moon. It didn't talk, not so much as a blinking light. The radiation we detected from it was reflected. Whatever propulsion had driven it through space had long since stopped, and inertia carried it now. No one knew how to respond to it. The news that was supposed to change the course of human history didn't. We wouldn't know any more about it until we looked at it up close, until we brought it here, brought it home. And that was where it all fell apart. I presented the initial findings at the International Astronomical Union annual meeting. My department gathered the data, but we couldn't do anything about implementation. No one group could implement anything. But, of course, the first argument was about whom the thing belonged to. I nearly resigned. Everyone wanted a piece of it including various governments and the United Nations, and we had to humor that debate because nothing could get done without funding. The greatest discovery in all of human history and funding held it hostage. Several corporations, including the producers of a popular energy drink, threatened to mount their own expeditions in order to establish naming and publicity rights until the U.S. Departments of Energy, Transportation, and Defense issued joint restrictions on privately funded extraorbital spaceflight, which caused its own massive furor. Meanwhile, we and the various other groups working on the project tracked U01 as it appeared to establish an elliptical solar orbit that would take it out to the orbit of Saturn and back on a 20-year cycle. 
We waited. We developed plans, which were presented and rejected. We took better and better pictures, which revealed enough detail to see struts holding up what did indeed appear to be the surface of a ram scoop. It did not, everyone slowly began to agree, appear to be inhabited. The data on it never fluctuated. No signals emanated from it. It was metal. It was solid. It was inert. We published papers and appeared on cable documentaries. We gritted our teeth while websites went up claiming that the thing was a weapon and a survivalist movement developed in response. Since it was indistinguishable from all the existing survivalist movements, no one really noticed. And we waited. The thing is, you discover the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence and you still have to go home, wash up, get a good night's sleep, and come up with something to eat for breakfast in the morning. Life goes on. Life keeps going on. And it's not that people forget or stop being interested. It's that they realize they still have to change the oil in the car and take the dog for a walk. You feel like the whole world ought to be different, but it only shifts. Your worldview expands to take in this new information. I go to work every day and look at that picture. My picture. This satellite or spacecraft, this message in a bottle. Some days I'm furious that I can't get my hands on it. Some days I weep at the wonder of it. Most days I look at it, sigh, and write another round of emails and make phone calls to find out what's going to happen to it. To make something happen. How goes the war? Marsh leans into my office like he does every afternoon, mostly to try to cheer me up. He's been here as long as I have. Our work overlaps and we've become friends. I go to his kids' birthday parties. The brown skin around his eyes crinkles with his smile. I'm not able to work up a smile to match. The Chinese say they're sending a probe with a robotic arm and a booster to grab it and pull it back to Earth. They say whoever gets there first has right of salvage. It's a terrible idea. Even if they did manage to get it back without breaking it, they'd never let anyone else look at it. No, I think they would, under their terms. He doesn't get too worked up about it because nobody's managed to do anything yet. Why would they now? He would say, I take all of this too personally. And he'd be right. The IAU is sending a delegation to try to talk the Chinese government into joining the coalition. They might have a chance of it if they actually had a plan of their own. Look, if you want me to talk your ear off, come in and sit, have some coffee. Otherwise, leave now. That's your warning. I'll take the coffee. 
he says, claiming the chair I pulled away from the wall for him before turning to my little desktop coffee maker. His expression softens, his sympathy becoming genuine rather than habitual. You backing any particular plan yet? I sigh. Gravity tractor looks like our best option. Change the object's trajectory, steer it into a more convenient orbit without actually touching it. Too bad the technology is almost completely untested. We can test it first, of course, which will take years, and there's an argument against it. Emissions from a gravity tractor's propulsion may damage the object. It's the root of the whole problem. We don't know enough about the thing to know how much stress it can take. The cowboys want to send a crude mission. They say the only way to be sure is to get eyeballs on the thing, but that triples the cost of any mission. Anything we do will take years of planning and implementation anyway, so no one can be bothered to get off their asses. Same old, same old. Two and a half years. It's been two and a half years since we took that picture. My life has swung into a very tight orbit around this one thing. Patience, Jane, Marsh says in a tone that almost sets me off. He's only trying to help. Truth is, I've been waiting for his visit. I pull out a sheet of handwritten calculations from under a manila folder. I do have another idea, but I wanted to talk to you about it before I propose anything. His brow goes up. He leans in with interest. He'll see it faster than I can explain it, so I speak carefully. We can use Angelus. When he doesn't answer yes or no, I start to worry and talk to cover it up. It launches in six months. Plenty of time to reprogram the trajectory. Send it on a flyby past you one Get more data on it than we'll ever get sitting here on Earth. His smile has vanished. Jane, I've been waiting for Angelus for five years. The timing is critical. My comet won't be this close for another 200 years. But Angelus is the only mission launching in the next year with the right kind of optics and maneuverability to get a good look at U01. And yes, I know the timing on the comet is once in a lifetime, and I know it's important, but this, this is once in a civilization. The sooner we can look at it, answer some of our questions, well, the sooner the better. The better you'll be. I'm supposed to wait, but you can't. Please, Marsh, I'll feel a lot better about it if you'll agree with me. Thank you for the coffee, Jane, he says, setting aside the mug as he stands. I close my eyes and beseech the ceiling. This isn't how I want this to go. Marsh, I'm not trying to sabotage your work. I'm just looking at available resources. And I'm not ultimately the one who makes decisions about what happens to Angelus. I'm just the one depending on all the data. You can make your proposal, but don't ask me to sign off on it. He starts to leave, and I say, Marsh, I can't take it anymore. I spend every day holding my breath, 
waiting for someone to do something truly stupid. Some days, I can't stand it that I can't get my hands on it. He sits back down, like a good friend should. A good friend would not, however, steal a colleague's exploratory probe away from him. But this is important. You know what I think? The best bet is to let one of these corporate foundations mount an expedition. They won't want to screw up because of the bad publicity, and they'll bring you on board for credibility, so you'll have some say in how they proceed. You'll be their modern-day Howard Carter. I can see it now. I'd be the face of the expedition. All I'd have to do is stand there and look pretty, or at least studious, explain gravity and trajectories for the popular audience, speculate on the composition of alien alloys, watch whatever we find out there get paraded around the globe to shill corn chips. Wouldn't even feel like selling my soul, would it? I must look green or ill or murderous because Marsh goes soothing. Just think about it before you go and do something crazy. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency creates personalized anti-aging formulas that smooth fine lines, lighten dark spots, and improve the appearance of dark circles. Each formula is tailored to you and prescribed by a licensed dermatology provider. Formulas are customized with clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than retinol. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel any I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem 
of a detour. Now, let's get back to our story. I've kept a dedicated SETI home computer running since I was 16. Marsh doesn't know that about me. I don't believe in extraterrestrial UFOs because I know, in great intimate detail, the difficulties of sending objects across the vast distances of space. Hell, just a few hundred miles into orbit isn't a picnic. We've managed it, of course. We are officially extrasolar system beings now, with our little probes and plaques pushing ever outward. Will they find anything? Will anything find them? Essentially, there are two positions on the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence and whether we might ever make contact, and they both come down to the odds. The first says that we're here... Humanity is intelligent, flinging out broadcasts and training dozens of telescopes outward, hoping for the least little sign. And the universe is so immeasurably vast that, given the odds, the billions of stars and galaxies and planets out there, we can't possibly be the only intelligent species doing these things. The second position says that the odds of life coming into being on any given planet, of that life persisting long enough to evolve, then evolve to intelligence, and then being interested in the same things we are, the odds of all those things falling into place are so immeasurably slim, we may very well be the only ones here. Is the universe half full or half empty? All we could ever do to solve the riddle was wait. So, I waited and was rewarded for my optimism. In unguarded moments, I'm certain this was meant to happen. I was meant to discover U01. Me and no one else, because I understand how important it is because I'm the one sitting here every day sending emails and making phone calls. I ID'd the image. I made the call. I had the guts to go public. I deserve a say in what happens next. I submit the paperwork proposing that the Angelus probe be repurposed to perform a flyby and survey of U01. Marsh will forgive me. I wait again. I've kept track and I've done 150 TV interviews in the last two years. Most of them are snippets for pop documentaries, little chunks of information delivered to the lowest common denominator audience. I explain over and over again in different settings, sometimes in my office, sometimes in a vague but picturesque location, sometimes at Griffith Observatory, because for some reason nothing says space like Griffith Observatory. I hold up a little plastic model of U01, 
They're selling the kits at hobby stores. We don't see any of the money from that. To demonstrate the way it's traveling through space, how orbital mechanics work, and how we might use a gravity tractor to bring it home. Sometimes, the segments are specifically for schools, and I like those best because I can give free rein to my enthusiasm. I tell the kids, this is going to take more than one lifetime to figure out. If we find a way to go to Alpha Centauri, it's going to take lifetimes. You'll have to finish the work I've started. Please, grow up and finish it. I call everyone I can think of who might have some kind of influence over Angelus. I explain that a picture of a metal object taken from a few million miles away doesn't tell us anything about the people who made it. Not even if they have thumbs or tentacles. Most of them tell me that the best plan they can think of is to build bigger telescopes. It's not the size, I mutter. It's how you use it. NASA thinks they will be making the decision because they've got the resources, the scientists, the experience, the hardware. Congress says this is too important to let NASA make decisions unilaterally. A half dozen private U.S. firms would try something if the various cabinet departments weren't busy making anything they could try illegal by fiat. There are already three court cases. At least one of them is arguing that a rocket launch is protected as freedom of speech. The IAU brought a complaint to the United Nations that the U.S. government shouldn't be allowed to dictate a course of action. The General Assembly nominated a representative in absentia for the species that launched U01, some Finnish philosopher I'd never heard of. It should have been me. After a decade of international conferences, I have colleagues all over the world. I call them all. Most are sympathetic. A South African cosmologist I know tells me I'm grandstanding, then laughs like it's a joke, but not really. They all tell me to be patient. Just wait. Life goes on. My other research, the asteroid research I was doing, has piled up and... I get polite but firm hints that I really ought to work on that if I want to keep my job. I go to conferences, I publish, I do another dozen interviews, holding up the plastic model of the object that I'll likely never get close to. The ache in my heart feels just like it did when Peter left me. That was three years ago, and I can still feel it. The ache that says, I can't possibly start over, can I? The egg faded when I found U01. JPL rejected your proposal to repurpose Angelus, thank God. Marsh leans on my doorway like usual. He's grinning like he won a prize. I got the news via email. The bastards can't even be bothered to call. I'd called them back thinking there must have been a mistake. The pitying tone 
and their voices didn't sound like kindness anymore. It was definitely condescension. I cried. I've been crying all afternoon as the pile of wadded-up tissues on my desk attests. My eyes are still puffy. Marsh can see I've been crying. He knows what it looks like when I cry. He was there three years ago. I take a breath to keep from starting up again and stare at him like he's punched me. How can you say that? Do you know what they're talking about now? They're talking about just leaving it. They're saying the orbit is stable. We'll always know where it is and we can go after it when we have a better handle on the technology. But what if something happens to it? What if an asteroid hits it or, or it crashes into Jupiter or... Jane, it's been traveling for how many hundreds of billions of miles? Why would something happen to it now? I don't know. It shouldn't even be there at all. And they won't even listen to me. He sounds tired. Why should they? Because it's mine. His normally comforting smile is sad, pitying, smug, and amused all at once. It's not yours. Not any more than gravity belonged to Newton. I want to scream because maybe this isn't the most important thing to happen to humanity. That's probably, oh, the invention of the wheel or language. Maybe this is just the most important thing to happen to me. I grab another tissue. I look at the picture of U01. It's beautiful. It tells me that the universe, as vast as we already know it is, is bigger than we think. Marsh sits in the second chair without waiting for an invitation. What do you think it is, Jane? Be honest. No job, no credibility, no speaking gig for discovery on the line. What do you think when you look at it? He nods at the picture. There are some cable shows that will win you credibility for appearing on them. There are some that will destroy any credibility you ever had. I have been standing right on that line, answering the question of what is it as vaguely as possible. We need to know more, no way to speculate, etc. But I know, I know what it is. I think it's Voyager. Not the Voyager, their Voyager. The probe they sent out to explore, and it just kept going. He doesn't laugh. You think we'll find a plaque on it? A, a message? A recording? It's what I want to find. I smile wistfully. But what are the odds? Gershwin... He says. I blink, but he doesn't seem offended by my confusion. He leans back in the chair, comfortable in his thick, middle-aged body. Genial. Someone who clearly believes all is well with the world, at least at the moment. 
We've had 14 billion years of particles colliding, stars exploding, nebula compressing, planets forming, all of it cycling over and over again, and then just the right amino acids converged. Life forms, and a couple of billion years of evolution later, we get Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron dancing by a fountain to Gershwin. And it's beautiful. For no particular evolution-driven reason, it's beautiful. I think, what are the odds that they're dancing, that it's on film, and that I'm here watching and thinking it's gorgeous? If the whole universe exists just to make this one moment happen, I wouldn't be at all surprised. So, if I think sometimes that maybe I was meant to find you a one because maybe there's a message there and that I'm the only one who can read it, then maybe that's not crazy. Like thinking that the universe sent me you a one at a time in my life when I desperately needed something to focus on, to be meaningful. Oh no, it's definitely crazy, but it's understandable. This time, his smile is kind. Marsh, this really is the most important thing to happen to humanity ever, isn't it? Yes, but... We still need to study and map near-Earth asteroids, right? I don't tell Marsh that I've never seen an American in Paris. I've never watched Gene Kelly in anything, but... Marsh obviously thinks it's important, so I watch the movie. I decide he's right. That dance at the fountain, it's a moment suspended in time. Like an alien spacecraft that shouldn't be there, but is. Two things happen next. At the next IAU meeting, an archaeologist presents a lecture on U01, which I think is very presumptuous, but I go because I go to everything having to do with U01. She talks about preservation and uses terms like in situ and how modern archaeological practice often involves excavating artifacts examining them, and then putting them back in the ground. She argues that we don't know what years of space travel have done to the metal and structures of U01. We don't know how our methods of studying it will impact it. She showed pictures of Mayan friezes that were excavated and left exposed to the elements versus ones that remained buried for their own protection so that later scientists with better equipment and techniques will be able to return to them someday. 
The exposed ones have dissolved, decayed past recognition. She gives me an image. I reach out and finally put my hand on U01 and its metallic skin, weakened by a billion micrometeoroid impacts gathered over millennia, disintegrates under my touch. I think of that and start to sweat. So, yes, caution. I know this. The second thing that happens, I turn my back on U01. Not really, <laughs> but it's a striking image. I write another proposal, a different proposal, and submit it to one of the corporate foundations, because Marsh may be right. If nothing else, it'll get attention. I don't mind a little grandstanding. We already have teams tracking a best-guess trajectory to determine where U01 came from. It might have been cruising through space at non-relativistic speeds for dozens of years, or centuries, or millions of centuries. But based on the orbit it established here, we can estimate how it entered the solar system and the trajectory it traveled before then. We can trace backwards. My plan? To send a craft in that direction. It will do a minimal amount of science along the way, sending back radiation readings, but most of the energy and hardware is going into propulsion. It will be fast and it will have purpose, carrying an updated variation of Sagan's Voyager plaques and recordings, digital and analog. It's a very simple message in the end. Hey, we found your device. Want one of ours? In all likelihood, the civilization that built U01 is extinct. The odds simply aren't good for a species surviving and caring for long enough to send a message and receive a reply. But our sample size for drawing that conclusion about the average lifespan of an entire species on a particular world is exactly one, which isn't a sample size at all. We weren't supposed to ever find an alien ship in our backyard, either. I tear up when the rocket launches, and that makes for good TV. As Marsh predicted, the documentary producers decide to make me the human face of the project, and I figure I'll do what I have to, as best as I can. I develop a collection of quotes for the dozens of interviews that follow. I'm up to 235. I talk about taking the long view and transcending the everyday concerns that bog us down. About how we are children reaching across the sandbox with whatever we have to offer to whoever shows up. About teaching our children to think as big as they possibly can and that miracles sometimes really do happen. 
they happen often. Because all of this, Gershwin's music, the great curry I had for dinner last night, the way we hang pictures on our walls of things we love, are miracles that never should have happened. It's a hope, a need, a shot in the dark. It's the best we can do for now. Ah. What did you think? I love this story. I, I'm a sucker for a first contact story. <laughs> um, I actually think that that first contact is our best Star Trek film. I mean, for the next generation. Um, in the Star Trek pantheon, I put first contact right behind the voyage home, um, Star Trek IV, um, the whales movie. And number two in the pantheon for me is First Contact followed by The Wrath of Khan or Khan then First Contact. But it's in the top three, okay? <laughs> it's in the top three. And I, I, I think it's because we all at one time or another have thought about, at least I think we all do, think about, you know, are we the only ones here? And what if we're not? And what happens when we learn that we're not. I mean, people have speculated that it might be the sort of thing to get humanity's attention to the point where we will pull our shit together and stop freaking fighting one another over every trivial little bullshit thing we can think of. But I don't know that we are meant to be rescued by some force outside of ourselves. I think this really is our deal here. We have to figure this shit out, y'all. There is no one coming to save us. This is on us. This is our job. This is our responsibility. This is our planet, and we are fucking it up, and we have to course correct. Seven generations. That's what Native Americans talked about. Seven generations forward. We are responsible for the things they will experience. We cannot leave our children an empty husk. We cannot destroy this paradise over profit and greed and our unwillingness to just chill the fuck out for a minute listen to one another and pay attention and have compassion for one another. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Smith, the best in the business, with help from Kristen Torres. Our editing and sound design is by Misha Stanton. Brendan Burns provided his engineering expertise for today's episode. Thank you, Brendan. And I'm very grateful to Carrie Vaughn for allowing me to read her story. If you liked it, go check out her Philip K. Dick award-winning novel, Bannerless, a murder mystery set in a post-apocalyptic society, and then read its sequel, 
The Wild Dead. And as always, if you enjoyed the podcast, recommend an episode to a friend or someone you think might enjoy it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and include a story suggestion for us. We read them. We use them. We love them. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. Or if you can't wait that long, well, go ahead and indulge yourself in the next episode right now. And exclusive bonus author interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early and ad-free. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar. Or if you're listening in Stitcher, simply tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon, Jenny Radelette Mast of the Flying Radelette Sisters, and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 